0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: If not at 70% and 80%, then when? Would Australia be closer to reopening if the Prime Minister had not failed his two jobs on vaccine and quarantine?
0: Wednesday. Unfortunately, in the background, actions are still proving that they don't get
1: it. Nobody is telling us exactly what's involved in the plan.
2: Australia seems to have
1: left it far too late to help those who helped us. I've had a gutful. I have had an absolute gutful.
3: Welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri Country...
2: And I'm Frank Kelly, also on Wurundjeri Land, because PK, we are in the same place for a change. That's nice.
3: It is lovely. I
2: actually haven't seen you in the flesh for a long, long time. I am.
3: There's lots of flesh here. (laughs) And also, um, you've come to Melbourne, which has been the driest place, can I say? That's right. I had had to get it. The humidity
2: in Sydney is something, another level. But of course, it's nothing compared to what people up north are going through. And we've got an action-packed podcast today for you, um, because the floods are dominating the lives and thoughts of so many Australians right now. We thought we should get an update uh, on the flood emergency in New South Wales. Ashley Raper is going to join us. She's the ABC's New South Wales state political reporter. She's been on the ground up north uh, for a few days, so she'll be with us soon. And a little later on, during the party room, we're going to be joined by Josh Butler from The Guardian, because it's not all floods and and climate and disaster this week. The government's had a few things to say about its nuclear submarine plans in particular, also defence spending ending, Um, you know, it's a huge, huge investment in defence in the submarine program alone to be rolled out over the next three decades. So any, any kind of announcements being made now in the shadow of an election have a sort of smudge of politics around them, because everything at this moment has a smudge of politics around it. But first, PK, let's get straight to the flood emergency response, one of the worst natural disasters in our history.
3: Yeah, and there is just... No other way to, you know, we keep hearing the word for an unprecedented and I, I kind of hate that word because <laughs> it's, it's so overly used. But what we've saw, particularly in northern New South Wales and in the Lismore region, there's nothing else like it.
2: Well, we've also heard one in 500, one in 1,000 year flood, one in 3,500 year
3: flood. Mm. I mean, unprecedented, I suppose covers it all. Yeah, it does. And and that's an interesting thing we should go through too. I mean, We know these disasters are going to be more frequent and more extreme because of climate change. So some of those figures, I wonder what they even matter because people keep getting hit like this. Okay, the government's response has been contentious. We know that. Both the New South Wales government's response and the federal government's response. The Prime Minister had COVID, which we talked about last week in the podcast. As soon as he got out of COVID ISO, he went straight to Lismore in northern New South Wales. And it wasn't until he actually got on the
1: ground that he called this national emergency. Here he is. I don't think in situations like this, there can ever be enough support. There can never be enough support in a natural disaster such as this. I mean, no amount of support is going to measure up to what people need in a desperate situation like this. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, every resource can be applied, but I can guarantee you whatever is supplied will still not measure up because of the sheer desperation of the situation people found themselves in.
3: Okay, never
1: enough support.
3: So let's decode that. That's his way of saying no one's ever going to be happy enough. We Doesn't can never what respond. I do, yeah. It's never going to be enough for you. <laughs> so it's sort of, it's set in this language of we understand, but there's an another loaded message in it, which is you can't possibly meet expectations because people are so desperate. Now, perhaps you can never meet the expectations of desperate people who've lost everything. Perhaps that's actually a fact, but on the sort of prism of how far you can go in satisfying people, perhaps you can go further. So let's go to some of the critiques, Fran. The National Emergency Declaration. Firstly, what does it even mean and why did he have to declare it when he got there? I mean, he could have declared it in ISO, presumably.
2: And what does it mean? I was going to ask you the same question, actually, (laughs) because it's something, it's a power the federal government uh, gave to itself in the wake of the Terrible black bushfires summers, in 2019, the black fires. summer fires. And it was about, because then the government's saying, well, we can't order in the defence forces until the states come and ask us. So the Prime Minister got legislation passed which gave them a whole lot more power to deploy money and resources more quickly. But then we find out, yes, this week, when the Prime Minister's in, in Lismore announcing it, that they still need the states to come and ask for it officially. Now, that's fine. That's a problem of federation. Federation slows things down. But it seems to me the government, the Prime Minister wanted this new power. He got it. And then what, two weeks later, they're declaring national emergency as the, uh, I think it was the, the Queensland Treasurer told you, PK, on breakfast this week. You know, we passed the the emergency stage. We're now in the rebuild two weeks later. So it's still too slow. And, you know, the Prime Minister's right. Not, it will never be enough for people. They've lost everything, you know. They've lost their favourite teacup, you know, right yeah. down to that Every level. Every memory every of Every single everything. thing. Um, it's never going to be enough. But there's just a sense that the Fed's and the states perhaps, but the Fed certainly aren't forward-leaning enough in asserting these powers, making things happen. You know, the Prime Minister's out again. This morning we're recording on a Thursday announcing that we've got more ADF personnel on the ground than any government ever before. Maybe so. It's it's still not quickly enough for people. People don't feel they can see it evident enough. And as I say, it's that forward-leaning thing. It's the sense of, well, we're doing more than we ever have, but it's not enough. We're having more natural disasters than we've ever had because of climate change. we knew this would happen, the scientists have been telling us for what, 15 years now at least, we knew it would happen, the Prime Minister accepts the climate's changing and yet we don't seem as a country to be putting the massive investment to be stand ready, mm. have a stand ready defence force to call out in a moment's notice, have stand ready telecommunications boxes, they, they exist now, look at Elon Musk's Starlink, it's literally a suitcase and a dish and you can set up comms, you know, stand ready power sources which also exist with renewables, all these things, particularly. Presumably, we will get to as a country, but it feels too long that people are having to rely on their own community efforts and individual efforts, and they want more from their government. And it's a bit of a moment, I think, where the government saying, well, hang on, we're doing more than we've ever done. And the, and the people saying, yeah, well, it's not enough. And I think that's because we are in this the, the climate emergency has caught up with us. If you like, mm. what did what did Queensland say? This is their ninetieth yep. uh, catastrophic event in in a decade. It's happening so much more frequently. We need to stand more ready with more funds and more effort.
3: Yeah, and the prime minister's using different language. There is a rhetorical shift, right? He's saying things like Australia is harder to live in. That the you know yep. the, the climate has changed. So there's no no contesting of that. It's the response that's the big question. If you look at just the figures, three percent is spent on mitigation. Right? 3%. It's clearly not good enough. We keep hearing the language that it will be addressed, but yet. It hasn't been yet.
2: And we have this emergency relief fund set up, the $4 billion. Accumulating. But but it's set up so that the interest is Mm. is funded. And and we hear that in the last two years since it's been set up, that hasn't really all been spent. So it's just, that's what I mean about not Mm. being forward-leaning enough. Look what we were able to do during the pandemic, just get those funds out the door. There needs to be a head shift, I think. And whatever the organisation is, the resilience organisation set up to do this, you know, it needs to be mobilised and the funds mobilised and it needs to be a priority and there's not a sense that that is a priority yet, that our thinking has shifted enough.
3: Now, in terms of disaster funding, on Wednesday, the Prime Minister turned up in Lismore. He was criticised for not letting the cameras go in when he talked, for instance, to farmers and locals. Uh, he says he didn't want to uh, offend their privacy. And I think, look, there is a sense that these people are in incredible distress. I don't think they do actually feel like everyone being around. I think the problem for him, though, is that he often likes the cameras on him. And after the disaster of the Black Summer, Um, where people didn't want to shake his hand. Um, It looked like it was overly stage managed to avoid that. But let's park that. Okay, I understand people want their privacy. And in fact, I spoke to a farmer who said he wanted his... He said he did want his privacy, right? And he did want to talk, frankly, with the Prime Minister. PM turns up right after ISO. Fair enough. Couldn't get there earlier physically. Uh, Can do things, though, from Kirribilli. Can. You can do anything from anywhere. That's what we've learnt from the pandemic. And certainly the Prime Minister can. He announces $33 million worth of support payments for people affected by... By the floods in northern New South Wales, with Lismore, Clarence Valley, and Richmond Valley councils declared catastrophe zones. Um, so, essentially, what they do is they exclude the Labor electorate from... That's also been affected. Ballin has been affected yeah. by... And they've been really hard hit from getting the funding. Now, as we record this on a Thursday morning, they're already re-looking at it uh, and and so forth. But, God, it wasn't a good look, Fran, to go in like that. All of these people suffering. They were accused of pork barring law or, or at least preferencing their own electorate. They denied it. They were very offended. Barnaby Joyce told me that's not, not what we're doing here. But either way everyone is in a catastrophic situation. And I think the
2: question is, was the money the Prime Minister came armed with to Lismore, was that even enough? And I think that's, on that note, why don't we bring in Ashley Raper because she's been reporting from the floods up there in the Lismore region. Ash, welcome to the party room.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
2: What do you think, Ash? Was it enough money that the Prime Minister came with? Look,
0: no, and and it has to be a starting point. And I think that that is what the federal government and both the state governments are saying that this is going to take an enormous amount of money, tens of millions. But at this stage, look... (laughs) it's nowhere near enough, but there is no plan for the other money to come. So yes, they need to mobilise some money now, but I think it's not just so much about the funding right now. It's actually getting people in there to sort out the situation. I think that is what is needed most at this stage without looking at whatever the the terms are. They don't really mean that much to people. And at this stage, people are on the ground with no internet, you know, trying to survive, trying to clean up their house. So in terms of exactly the funding that's available right now, it's... It's very helpful, uh, but but yes, it, there needs to be much more to come. But there needs to also be a, a plan, and we have no plan yet. The the Premier Dominic Perrottet, he's on his second visit up there uh, in Lismore, and and there's still really no plan. And- they want action. We are we are days now. You know, we're in the second week of this. Look, Ash, I spoke to the New South Wales
3: Premier, Dominic Perrottet, and the tone he used was one of taking responsibility, and he sounded pretty apologetic about the approach so far. It's a bit of a different tone, I think, to the one we've heard from the federal government. A bit of nuance here. But, you know, I do think Dominic Perrottet has sounded different. What's your read of that? Because there's this kind of, you know, the federation, it's complicated,
0: it's the sense of who takes responsibility. What's your read? Yes, I think there's a very different tone coming from the Premier to the Prime Minister. But look, it is the states that manage this as a starting point in terms of preparation the response when the disaster is unfolding. And then they are in charge in the aftermath as a starting point. So yes, it does have to go to the Premier, Dominic Perrottet. But I think what they're both doing, the, the state and federal government, they are pursuing this narrative about on that night, and we know in Lismore, that it wasn't the state emergency service or or other emergency services that essentially came to save people. It was uh, just locals on their boat and they saved thousands of people in Lismore on that day. And we've heard from both the Prime Minister and the Premier holding these people up as heroes and absolutely they are and and then it goes into this this narrative of the australian spirit and mm. and pushing that and that and that is what makes australia great a, a, as they say but it is very much for people on the ground and i think this is a conversation that we will have to have as a society going forward you know when in your darkest hour when there is water rising around you when you think you're going to drown Nobody came. There was no authority that had your back. And I think we do look at it through a different prism, especially after COVID. We, yeah. we did everything the government told us to do. We got vaccinated. We locked down. Then when there's an emergency, nobody came. They didn't. A triple O didn't even answer people's calls. And I think that, that what the Premier and the Prime Minister are trying to do is really shift that focus away and hold these, the communities and these communities save yourself. But we need to question, is it right that a community saved itself?
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I heard again just today, in fact, Ash, another story of someone who got rescued by a, a volunteer and who got the response from the SES two days later, two days after they were recovered, you know, neck high in water. So these stories are legion. I'm sure you've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Of course, a community response is going to be the first one. And, of course, SES emergency volunteer services are going to be stretched. But we obviously need to reposition and um, and and beef up if you like our ready response in these areas because we know these are going to happen more often. I suppose what I what I'm interested in from you is how connected are people or how plugged in are people to their fury and blame at the moment or how caught up are they in just sort of getting on with their own uh,
0: needs and responses. You know, how much energy is being expended on political fury? Not a lot. I, look, I think that the people are questioning exactly what happened on that night. So there are two parts to this. I think there's lots of questions about why didn't anybody come to us? But there is so much anger because there wasn't just a breakdown in the emergency sp- response uh, on that night. And I think the Premier has acknowledged that that will be looked at and, and that, that it wasn't enough and there will be an inquiry. But it wasn't just on that night, on day two, three, four, five, there was huge supply issues. There was a lot of confusion and chaos in the ground government agencies came in, but they couldn't work out who was in charge. We have this new resilience body here in New South Wales. It's called Resilience New South Wales. And that almost confused the situation because they're sort of meant to be in charge. Nobody quite knew they're quite a big bureaucratic beast. It seems like it just added another layer of bureaucracy to the situation, trying to coordinate all the government agencies. And I think that's what people are really angry about because there was no food. You know, There's no power. Uh, there, there was nobody there that could help in the aftermath immediately. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we've had an, a national emergency declared on day nine. Where were people on day two? The ADF, the state government asked for the ADF to come in. They asked for 5,000 people, personnel to come in on the Saturday. It took then days for them to come in. People are asking where was the ADF with their choppers that could bring food into these other communities outside Lismore like Wardell and Woodburn who were basically cut off and went through the whole thing alone. Why weren't they putting in? And it goes to that this is going to happen time and time again. There seems to be not a lot of lessons learned from the the black summer bushfires in New South Wales that it has just been so slow to mobilise and that is what people are angry about the most. It's the aftermath and the days and why has it taken so long for people to come in and, and help? And even to work out where to put everybody's soiled and, and, and ruined yeah. furniture, there was just piles and piles and piles of rubbish. It's a readiness issue, isn't it? And What you're saying is it's a readiness issue. Absolutely. And that why isn't there an ADF team who can be deployed on day two or day three well, to come in? Well, let's go
3: to that because the Prime Minister said you can't have them around the corner. Um, he addressed that because it's been such a big critique. What did you make of his response on that? You can't have them around the corner. Or, you know, they can't be ready like that
0: why not? And I think that, that is the question. And also, why not on Monday? Isn't there somebody on standby to be like, you know, we put the call in, we might need you to go. Can you be ready? Let's get things in place. And even if it is day five, it wasn't happening. It was happening more than a week afterwards. And mm. I don't think, I think most people would say that's not good enough.
2: Yeah. As, especially as we know, these disasters, these climate disasters are going to keep happening more frequently now. And everyone's acknowledging that.
3: Ash, thank you very much. Thank you. Ashley Raper, New South Wales State Political Reporter for ABC News.
2: And PK, you know, floods and disasters were front of mind for so many Australians this week. But that wasn't all. The government was caught up with. We've already mentioned the Prime Minister's and had a major defence announcement this week. But also, the government was wanting to talk about its nuclear submarine program. Peter Dutton kicked it off on Insiders on Sunday.
1: Uh, we are going to acquire the capability much uh, sooner than that. And when uh, the arrangement that's well, the arrangement that's underway at the moment between the US and the UK and us has been incredibly productive. We'll have an announcement within the next couple of months uh, about uh, which boat we're going with.
2: An announcement within the next couple of months, which Mm. would have put it right within the election campaign. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, he didn't think that was a very good idea. In fact, he was, I would say, red hot with anger about that when he spoke to you on breakfast.
1: We are literally on the eve of an election and, you know, rushing Uh, decisions which were meant to take 18 months into a six-month time frame to suit an election is transparently political.
2: PK, maybe the Prime Minister was listening to you that morning. Maybe he heard that because later that day, Scott Morrison appeared to walk away from Peter Dutton's time frame.
3: Yeah, he certainly did. He said it won't be before the election. It was quite clear. Um, I, in fact, spoke to Peter Dutton again this week on breakfast and asked him, who's right, you or the Prime Minister? Because you said a couple of months and, you know, he was like, we're both right. I didn't mean before the election and suggested he'd been misreported, although I didn't see any clarification of the word. I heard it with my own
2: ears just then.
3: (laughs) (laughs) He said that he didn't mean that was before the election. So what's a couple of months? All right, like, let's have that debate. Let's just really, though, explain what this is about this is about a khaki election and uh, and we're seeing more of that because we're recording this on a Thursday. What we know is that the government wants to, as we mentioned, increase the number of troops ultimately and, and build the army up, which is also one of their pledges. So, you know, announcement after announcement trying to make the military and the Defence Force and our national security front and centre. And this comes after the Prime Minister gave a very key speech on foreign policy talking about um, the kind of situation Australia is in, well, the world is in, but never in 80 years have we been in this situation. Mm -hmm. So, Fran, you know, the, the subs decision, yes, the PM walking away and sort of saying it won't be rushed, well, yeah, it's not a great look right to to make something happen quicker because there is an election coming clearly the prime minister there is a sense of an awareness, maybe, that you can't do that. Well, I mean, in fact, the
2: power of incumbency means you can do that. It's what you can get away with.
3: Can't can't do it without a serious rebuke that you are fast tracking something that is incredibly significant. That you are politicising yeah. national
2: security. So it's what you can get away with. Uh, you know, Peter Dutton sort of foreshadowed that they would be trying to get away with some kind of announcement. Labor was straight onto it. Malcolm Turnbull was straight onto it, and really did put it up in lights. But I think this is something the government will be trying to do. Do, and it is on the political radar now, so that it, will be, it will be noted every time they do it, but it's not going to stop them, as we saw with the Prime Minister's troops announcement uh, today. I think this is a perfect time to
3: introduce our guest, don't you? Let's do it. Josh Butler, political reporter at The Guardian Australia. Welcome to the party room.
4: Hello. Thank you for having me.
3: So, Josh, the government's been talking about the new nuclear submarine program this week. Uh, clearly, Peter Dutton, you know, getting into that space, the Prime Minister then, well, rebuking is probably a strong, too strong a language, but certainly uh, giving a different answer on the time frame. And then we're recording this on a Thursday morning. We've got this increase in troops. A $38 billion increase in defence. Not insignificant. And this is kind of being, uh, someone has actually just pointed out to me, someone from the press gallery, I don't know if they want to be named, so I'm just going to leave it, but said, you know, we've got this announcement on a base where the word Labor's been mentioned 10 times, a real (laughs) politicisation, you could argue, of the defence force. Josh, what's going on?
4: Yeah, I was just watching um, the the prime minister's press conference just now, and it was oh, Labor wouldn't do this, and you can't trust Labor to do that. I mean, it, this is obviously one of the the strengths they're looking to to play to on this election. I mean. Labor seems to sort of have them on you know a number of the the, the big issues around you know wages and, and equality and, and those sort of things. Even sort of COVID management turned to be a bit of a uh, not a positive for the government at the moment. So obviously they go back to things around like the economy and and national security. And you know I think this Russia Ukraine situation has sort of got a lot of people on edge. People thinking about the military again, maybe for, for the first time in a in a little while. I think it definitely plays into some of their strengths about the coalition saying you know don't take the risk, don't switch over, stay with who. You know and will be the steady hand that's going to keep Australia on track. I think this is exactly what they want to to keep talking about.
2: We were listening to the Prime Minister too. It was pretty unvarnished, really, how he was making the point that defence spending under Labor, you know, up to 2012, probably that budget, you know, where there was a big gap between where the the coalition's taken it. And it's true, they did immediately increase defence spending, but Mm. the Prime Minister was making sure everyone was aware of that. I personally thought it was a very strange time to shift the focus uh, of the government to a major defence spending announcement, 18,500 more troops mm. to our defence forces, a big announcement, when he's standing in a, a flood prone area that's just been devastated by one of the worst natural disasters floods in our history. I thought that was a little insensitive. Did anyone else think that?
4: Yeah, I thought that was quite an interesting sort of um, parallel that he drew exactly between these two big issues we're talking about at the moment, obviously, one being the floods and the other being the Defence Force. I mean, he he even went back and he sort of linked all these bits together and he sort of said, oh, you know, in 2011, when there were the big Brisbane floods, um, the Gillard government, who I'm making no criticism of, we've got our response out from the ADF so much quicker and and all these people out, all this sort of thing. So he's sort of knitting up all these different bits of of what we're talking about at the moment, you know, Labor you can't trust Labor, the government's doing well on the floods, um, you know, don't don't criticise the ADF, we're spending more than anyone's ever spent before. And all these bits are all sort of coming together or he's trying to put them all together and, and, and sort of say how good they are going when at the, at the time, I mean, obviously there are so many questions about the government's response to the floods, about why um, the ADF maybe wasn't sent in sooner or, or stronger or in a, in a more um, organised sort of way. I, I, I think this is, you know, them sort of trying to, you know, deflect a lot of those criticisms that they're copying at the moment.
3: And Josh, obviously going back to, you know, the way that the government's trying to handle some of these issues Mm. and wanting to focus on national security. Is the government's recent strengthening of its rhetoric and its announcements it's you know, it's its um, actual spending on national security working because I think there's well, the latest Guardian essential poll showing that rally around the flag effect in Australia over the war in Ukraine is perhaps not having the impact that they thought it would.
4: Well yeah, the latest Guardian essential poll asked which political party was better equipped to um, understand and react to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. 24% of people said the coalition, 24% Labor and, and 33% said they didn't really think it made much difference. So it's it's you know a third of people said they didn't care which party it was or didn't think it made a difference. A quarter said each party you know the, each party individually. So um, I thought that was quite interesting that you know on on this this issue where you know we in the media always sort of say it's one of those sort of tropes. You go oh people think co- the coalition's st- you know better on national security. In in this poll, at least in this one Guardian poll, it seems that um, Australians are uh, split.
2: So it's not quite clear whether the khaki election theme is working yet for the coalition, as, as we are just saying, that the polls don't suggest it is. But I think that could change a lot depending on how the Ukraine situation plays yeah. out. I mean, if that intensifies and spreads, I think we're in a whole different atmospheric and we don't really know what that's going to do here domestically. But, you know, I, I think I think that's a, a big factor here. On that front, the Prime Minister gave a major foreign policy speech, at the Lowy Institute, uh, from COVID isolation this week.
1: Hmm. A new arc of autocracy. Is instinctively aligning to challenge them and reset the world order in their own image. We face the spectre of a transactional world devoid of principle, accountability, and transparency, where state sovereignty and territorial integrity and liberty are surrendered for respite from coercion and intimidation, or economic entrapment dressed up as economic reward.
2: Josh, the arc of autocracy certainly had a ring to it, I thought. What does he mean by it? And is it a line being used by you know, other allied countries as well, or is this Australian-owned?
4: Yeah, the arc of autocracy, the the axis of evil, what the the semicircle of sin. What are we talking about here? Um, it is a. I haven't heard that line before myself, but you know the the, the alliteration, autocracy. I mean, this is one of these things that um, we have heard that sort of rhetoric from world leaders a lot in the last couple of weeks. I mean, when about um, how world leaders have kind of almost um, unanimously come together to uh, condemn Putin, con- condemn Russia's invasion there of of Ukraine, um, and as well, obviously in the in the Australian context. here, Year, there's been a lot of questions and, and sort of tying it to uh, to China and, and autocracy in that in that part of the world, in that country as well. I think, you know, that is one of those scary words that, that people hear and, and think about mm. democracy. And I think my own Scott Morrison and his government are talking about how strong and how important Australia's um, democratic tradition is. I think, you know, to, oh, to set up- to up, and, and absolutely, don't sorry. Typically, not not disputing that at all. But to set up that sort of that sort of um, parallel there of going, we are this way, and, and they are that way. I think that's a uh, again sort of feeds into that sort of um, khaki election sort of thing of trying to mm. say, you know, we are one way, and there's people out there, evildoers doers looking to. to, to and that it's happening in our
3: region. That's in our region, the real absolutely. message. Well, it's
2: bringing China in. Yep. It allows the government China. to bring China in. And whenever they can do that, they feel like that's a sort of, again, you know, the, gives the incumbent an upper hand. Uh, mm. uh, 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 you know, they think Labor will be perceived as being weaker, they're weaker on China than the government's.
4: Absolutely. And, you know, you talk about an arc of autocracy. It's, it's not just one person or one country doing this autocracy. No. It's an arc. There's mm. several of them. And I think people can join the dots there.
3: So. Well, there's Russia. There's North Korea. There's China, mm. for instance. Mm. Yes. So I want to switch if we can. We've already had a bit of a solid discussion really on floods on this podcast, but just bringing you in on that, Josh, if we can. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we've got the New South Wales government scrambling and trying to, you know, take responsibility for what's gone wrong with these this flooding, particularly in northern New South Wales, where the event um, has been quite catastrophic Prime Minister turned up, he didn't have cameras on him, We've explained, you know he didn't he wanted to have private um meetings, but either way, the speed and the response, there, there seems to be a bit of a scramble from the federal government. The Prime Minister needed to be very, very, very careful that there was not a repeat of the Black Summer cluster of his response, right, which, you know, they know that if he he was here, we'd have to agree that that was not, well, not the finest hour for the Morrison government or for Scott Morrison personally. Has he responded to this one dramatically differently in your view?
4: Look, I mean, to be as you say. Look, to be fair, he has been in COVID isolation for a week. He he couldn't physically get to the disaster zone. But the flip side of that too is, I mean, this is this is a government. This is a cabinet government, and and Labor has been up in there in that area. You yeah, know, Murray Watt, the Shadow Emergency uh, Minister, there. He's been up in in that part of the world in Lismore and and, and Brisbane, saying for days, I, you know, where is the government? Where is the government? And you know, I I think this this is one of these issues that does sort of threaten to turn into one of those festering. Saws mm. for the coalition again. I mean, you know, obviously Morrison got up there at literally the first chance that he had. But the the question is, well, why did it take until he could physically get there to to make some of these declarations, to make this emergent, this national emergency declaration, to to roll out some more of this funding that he did yesterday? I mean, he could make speeches to to Lowy and to the AFR conference via video. Why couldn't he do some of these um uh, announcements? remotely. I mean, I don't think that he needed to physically be there to, to make these changes. Obviously, uh, he, he was asked these questions yesterday, why did it take so long? And his answer was, we, we didn't need the emergency declaration until today because we're moving into a new phase of the recovery in Lismore. But, but Patricia, you had um, Stephen Miles, the, the Queensland Deputy Premier on your show this morning, I was listening to him and he was saying, well, we're not in the disaster phase anymore, we're in the recovery phase and, mm. and, and this national emergency that was declared yesterday was not just for Lismore, it was not just for New South Wales, it was for Queensland as well. So I think the question is, well, if it was so needed for Lismore yesterday, why did it take two weeks for it to happen in in Queensland when it's no longer that emergency Mm. phase, as the Deputy Premier said this morning?
2: And just just zooming out a bit, yes, emergency response, immediate emergency response, is by and large the responsibility of the states. But mm. climate policy is is the federal responsibility. This is a one in five hundred year event, according to the prime minister. The deputy prime minister, I think, described it as one in three and a half thousand year event, wasn't it? <laughs> um, whatever uh, the prime minister has said you know, that Australia is becoming a harder country to live in because of these natural disasters, acknowledging climate is changing and climate change is an issue. Do you think that this flooding disaster, so widespread, is likely to bring climate policy front and centre in the election contest again? And is that going to help or hinder a coalition government, given how much this issue hurt Labor the last election or, or have things moved on?
4: That's that's a really good point. And and I think, you know, obviously when, when, you know, Anthony Albanese or anyone in Labor gets asked about climate change, they say, oh, we announced this climate policy and it's supported by this laundry list of, of industry and farmers groups and what have you. But, you know, I'm not sure Labor really wants to talk that much about climate in this election other than to say what they've already said. I don't think you're going to see, um, you know, the the Labor Party out there sort of screaming for more um, climate action because they very carefully picked their 43% reduction target to be just less than what it was last time. I don't think we're going to see them, you know, out there madly campaigning on, on climate. But, you know, at the same time, I think this is one of those disasters that is so widespread that I think Australian people will be maybe basing their vote Mm. on on this at the election. I mean, obviously- Well, that's what I was
2: wondering, you know, whether this is going to bring that issue. Just a few weeks ago, we were saying this was going to be a referendum on the pandemic Mm. and and climate looked like it'd be further down the list, except in some of those inner city seats that the coalition in particular is worried about. But you think that's going to change that?
4: Well, I don't know. I mean, like, think about the Black Summer bushfires. When when that was happening in 2020, uh, I thought- yeah, I think a lot of people thought you know, this is the time, this is the time everyone's going to finally click the switch on, on climate change and go, this is a big deal. But then obviously that got subsumed by a little thing called the coronavirus pandemic and everyone sort of forgot about climate change for a little while. Uh, I think that's a really tough question. I think when you look at the sort of political realities of it, there aren't a lot of maybe swing seats that are going to be affected by this, like all those places up on the north coast mm-hmm. are pretty safe either way of, you know, Labor or Liberal. I mean, if this flooding crisis now does, um, you know, spread even further into parts of, say, Sydney or, or, or Brisbane, I mean, obviously Brisbane's in the recovery phase now, but see, I, I would just wonder exactly how much this, this does. Hope. It's interesting to yeah. say
3: that, Josh. Sure, the catastrophic level, right, you're right, how, yeah. where does it affect and how, although it'll be interesting to see how that federal seat of Page goes um, yes, with exactly. their response. So, yeah. That, that's a national seat and that's where it's been hit the hardest. Mm. It's a very interesting seat, I think. Watch that space. But I think um, it did rain for two weeks nonstop in Sydney. It <laughs> like, did. I, I don't know, people in Sydney. It was raining. horrible. Still yeah. raining. <laughs> I don't live in Sydney. I live in Melbourne, but I have a lot, quite a lot to do with Sydney and I, can, I just think there is strong concern about what's happening to our weather, even if it hasn't destroyed your house. Yeah. So that will be interesting.
4: And I, and I hope there is. I mean, I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't. I, I absolutely think that this is one of the top tier issues. I mean, Scott Morrison was asked yesterday whether he believes that natural disasters should uh, are being considered as a national security threat. And I think in this way, I mean, if we're going to have thousands of people left homeless um, on the North Coast, if we're going to have all these, you know, hundreds of homes and whatever rebuilt, people are talking now about whether we relocate some towns or whether we incentivize mm-hmm. people to build out of flood zones or would the government buys back all these houses en masse and tells people to try and live somewhere else. I mean, these these are these massive issues that that are going to change whole communities or whole towns or whole, or whole you know, electorates or whole LGAs or whatever yeah, big descriptor right. you want to use.
2: If sure. governments grapple with it, if governments yes. finally bite that bullet. And so far, there's been no indication of government, state or federal preparing to put it up in lights in that way.
3: Mm. All right. We can't grapple with everything now. <laughs> so luckily, we'll be back next week. But Josh, thank you for your time today to joining us on The Party Room. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Josh. See you.
1: Questions without notice, the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you. And and I'm pleased the question time at least is
4: happening, Mr Speaker.
3: The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. And this week's question comes from Adam who asks, I've been wondering why the media have not talked about possible fatigue amongst the voting public in the conservative federal government. I remember it being considered a factor that ended John Howard's 11-year reign it goes on. The Lib Nats have been in power for nine years now, but has the rotation of party leaders refreshed the government in people's minds?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Adam. And I think what you're saying is why isn't the it's time factor being talked about or, or is it playing on people's minds? I actually haven't thought about it. As I do, I think I think it is the rotating leaders that is different here, that every time there's a new leader, there's a sense of, if you think of the difference between the attitudes of the Turnbull government to the Abbott yeah, government, we've had three versions. it felt like a different government. And now we've got the, the Scott Morrison version. Um so I think that is the reason that there's not an it's time
3: factor. Well I'm not picking up anyway. What do you think? I think that's a good point. The refreshed leader has given them a new chance to reset each time. Labour though, the point you make Adam is a, is a really good one. It's the one Labour's actually trying to drill down on. It's just it's more of a subtle message rather than a, a sledgehammer. But if you listen carefully as I do, <laughs> it's like my job to the messages coming from Labour. It is about it being a tired government. They're the same old people. Their argument is that actually, the you know, yeah, sure, there's different kind of people in different roles, but it's the same bunch of dudes, so to speak. There's some women there too, of course. But... That are, and, and that they are not doing anything new and they don't have many on ideas. Particularly the economic
2: stuff, they go, it's been nine years and yep. the
3: debt's just got you know bigger under this government, that sort of thing. Probably doesn't resonate the same way as it does for John Howard because the sense with John Howard, remember Peter Costello kind of squibbed it at the end, didn't kind of put his hand up, not enough ticker according to Labor. But, you know, there was a sense of fatigue in that one guy as well. He wouldn't sign on to Kyoto. There were various things that made him look like he just wasn't keeping up with the times, whereas there has been a shift with leaders, and I think that changes the dynamics electorally a bit. But a good point. I mean, they have been in power for a long time. Good
2: question, Adam. We love getting your questions, so please, everyone, send them in. You can tweet using hashtag ThePartyRoom or email your questions to ThePartyRoom at abc.net.au.
3: Remember to follow The Party Room on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcasting app. And I said this last week, I want to remind you again because I noticed it worked. Please rate and review us because it helps us, you know, get boosted up the charts or whatever matters to me. Come on,
2: gold stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
3: because people forgot. But if you can rate and review us, that'd be great. That's it for The Party Room this week. We'll be back next week, of course. See you, PK. See you, Fran.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover
4: more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.